Well, thank you for that warm introduction. It is great to be here, Exilic Church. Good to see you all. Yeah, no one who takes themselves seriously would ever ever wear shoes like this, right? So, uh, if you get bored, just you can look at my shoes later. It's all right. John Fluvog, he's a great Christian shoemaker, believe it or not. I think he's in New York. Anyway, I've completely distracted you. I'm sorry about that. Um, it's great to be here. Alex John Alexander is my name. I got it because I was born in the city of Alexandria, Virginia. Yeah, baby. Go, Virginia. Uh, my sister's name is Virginia. Any, no one? Listen, when you're born in the 60s, your parents had no choice. They just came up with names that sounded good. I could have been Sears. So I'm glad that it's, you know, Alexander. After the city I was born, my father said, you're born in the United States, Alex. You can do anything you want. You can run for president. You can be president because you're a citizen. And anyone can be president, apparently. Um, anyway, my dad filled my head with hopes and dreams of what I could be in the United States, even president of the United States. And... Um, Shortly thereafter, um, pretty much in elementary school, a very similar story to what your pastor just shared, I was very quickly discovered that I wasn't the same as everybody else. Started off innocently enough about why my hair color was the way it was, why my eyes were the way they were, all these types of things. And then eventually it turned to teasing and bullying. And uh, those were basically junior high school, high school years for me. Uh, predominantly white institution. Um, and so that was my life. And so young Alex hated my parents. Why did you leave Korea? Why couldn't we just stay there? Because I wouldn't have these problems. I'd have friends. I wouldn't be uh, beaten up every day and getting into fights. And I hated my parents for it. Actually, I wasn't a Christian then. Uh, angry Alex really hated God. I was angry at God for making me the way I was. I, didn't, I looked in the mirror and I didn't like what I saw. Maybe some of you can relate to this. And I was angry at my creator. Is this some sort of cosmic joke that you wanted to have at my expense? Are you entertained by this to see me suffering like this? What I had failed to understand, friends, was God made me imago Dei. God made me in his image. And he made me wonderfully and fearfully made. I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. But... I failed to understand that I was made in his image, and it was perfect. God did not make a mistake. Either he, I was thinking either he made a mistake or he was unintentionally cruel or intentionally cruel, but he was neither. He was a loving God who loved me greatly, and I came at a great sacrifice uh, to be born and to be saved. So I can talk more about that later. But that's part of my story. But I wanted to share with you today, I'll unpack more of my, my um, baggage with you this weekend and uh, I'll share with you why I am the way I am. Actually, I just had a, um, a Facebook reminder. 40 years ago, I was in fifth grade. And I posted that on, yeah, I know. <laughs> hey, friends, I've got shoes older than you, believe me. Um, Forty years ago, I was in fifth grade, and my daughter and my—I have two, a daughter and two sons. They're all third generation Korean Americans, and uh, she saw the picture and she says, "Oh, you weren't kidding, Appa. You really were the only Asian kid in your school." And she just—it couldn't. She couldn't imagine what that was like. You know, we live in Arcadia, California, uh, predominantly Asian community. 
Um, and my church is in Fullerton, California. So if you've heard of Sunny Hills or if you've heard of uh, Troy, these are all Asian schools, kind of like Stuyvesant, I guess you could say. Very similar and other, other schools. So anyway, um, it was interesting to me as my daughter reflected, I can't believe you're the only Asian in your school. I, she couldn't fathom what that was like. And I told her, that's why Appa has so many issues. It's, I'm still trying to resolve them. This is what I'm trying to tell you. So anyway, so I get to share some of that with you today. But before I go any further, I'm going to give you the best part. The best part of my talk begins right now because I'm going to read the word of God to you. And you can't go wrong here. Uh, you have the passage, I believe, in your uh, notes so you can follow along here. But Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. 6 verses 1 through 6. Let me pull it up here. All right, here then is the reading of God's holy word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint in the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their orphans were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right for us. Um, sorry, I just got lost. I don't have my glasses. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochoros, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And then verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I love this passage because if you know the context of this, this is the start of what we know as deacons one of two offices in the church. And what was going on? What was the context? You read this in the beginning of Acts. It says, in those days when the church was growing, the number of people who were coming to faith was growing. Right? So that's probably the first important point that you have to recognize, that the church in the early church was growing. And what happened second? There was a complaint that rose against one group over another. Now, it's interesting because we have to think about it in our context today. Is the church of Jesus Christ growing? Yes, it is. It's growing. It's not growing in North America. It may not be growing in Europe, in Western Europe, but it's growing in Asia, in China. The numbers of Christians, uh, people coming to faith in China, in Brazil, in Africa. Uh, it's in, uh, incredible numbers of people coming to faith. So it's not the traditional people that you think they may not be Americans. But what's fascinating about this passage is there's a problem. What's the problem? Widows are being deno denied uh, uh, food in the daily distri distribution. And the problem is, you see here, you've got the, the, the Hebrew Jews and the Grecian Jews. So they're, they're Jewish people, but they're like Greek-speaking. Sort of like, I, I guess the equivalent might be Korean Koreans and Korean Americans, right? Um, and I'm well experienced in that with the first generation Korean and the second generation Korean. If you grew up in that kind of church, you understand. And uh, I did that all the time. I would say, hey, something's going wrong. You're not feeding us. You're, only, you're forgetting about us. This is part of the problem that arose. And what did the, 
What do the apostles do in response to this as the Grecian Jews raise this concern? What did they do? They didn't put a study committee together. They didn't organize and try to figure out, like, uh, let's, let's uh, put a manual together. No, they gathered and they said, let's, let's pick people who are holy and righteous and full of faith. And they picked seven, and they were the deacons. So if you think about the role of the original um, officers that were identified as deacons, it was dealing with racial reconciliation. It was dealing with issues of power, unintended consequences of people in power. And so that's a fascinating uh, understanding for us. Now, if you read closely, as you do a little more study on the names of the deacons that were first chosen, turns out they're all Greek names. In other words, the response to the church when there was a problem along ethnic differences between the powerful and the, and the not powerful, the church gave responsibility and power to the minorities, gave power to the, the Greek-speaking Jews. They didn't seek equality or equal representation. They didn't all of a sudden say, oh, now there are too many Grecian Jews and that's not fair for me. Right now, I feel oppressed. It wasn't that. They gave them full power and authority. I mean, it's a beautiful picture of the Bible, of what, even in the early church, what we needed to learn about racial reconciliation. Not necessarily true today. It's an ongoing struggle. Now, they didn't simply say, oh, yeah, you're welcome. We're, we're glad that you're here. They recognized that there was an issue, there was a conflict, and they addressed it with overrepresentation and sharing and empowering another group. Okay, you're probably wondering what this is. Um, I'm gonna tell you a little story. This is a story that came from um, uh, Thomas and Woodruff. Roosevelt Thomas wrote this um, book called The Building House for Diversity, but the best part of the book really is just the first two pages. Uh, so don't buy the book, I'll tell you the story, then you're, you're fine. Um, but it's a fable. And as every good fable or story begins, once upon a time, there was this giraffe. And the giraffe had this beautiful house. The giraffe was an architect and built the house according to the giraffe's standards. So you can imagine uh, narrow walls and soaring ceilings because the giraffe has a long neck. Uh, beautiful views of the vistas. And uh, just perfect. It, it won Giraffe House of the Year and all these other things. Um, uh, probably million-dollar listing in New York if it was there. Um, anyway, so this beautiful house that was built. Giraffe is working outside and sees her friend, the elephant. She says, hey, I know that elephant. Our children are in AYSO together. I think I saw this elephant at PTSA. I'm going to invite this elephant over. So he yells out the window. The, the elephant is delighted. And the, the elephant comes up to the front of the door, and they experience the first problem. What is it? Can't get in the door. So the giraffe says, ah, oh, I see the problem. But I can make accommodations so that I can grant you access. The elephant then comes in. They chit-chat for a few minutes. The phone rings. So the, the giraffe says, make yourself at home. I'll be right back. Make yourself at home. I'll be right back. Well, the elephant wants to walk around and see the house because he heard it was so beautiful. And what happens? The walls are too narrow for the elephant. Tries to go up the stairs. They start crumbling at the weight of the elephant. Backs, uh, comes back down and knocks over a lamp and cracks a wall. You can imagine the scene as the giraffe comes back in and says, Oh my goodness, what happened? And the elephant says, I don't know. I tried to make myself at home. And the giraffe says, Ah, I see the problem. You're too fat. 
You need to lose some weight. Maybe you can take ballet lessons and get lighter on your feet. I love having you here. But in order for you to stay, you're going to need to change. Now, the elephant is not convinced, is she? The elephant says to the giraffe, I'm not sure that a house that was built for giraffes was ever intended for elephants. Now, it's nice to talk about this story as I talk about diversity and race because it's safe. You know, I'm not calling out any particular group. But you can imagine, right, what the dominant group is and what the subdominant group is. And perhaps some of you here can relate to this story. Imagine, that's the end of the story, but I'm going to add on to it. Imagine if the elephant, instead of saying, I'm not sure that a system that was built for a certain people, people group is going to benefit people who are not part of that group, what if the elephant actually believed the giraffe? What if the elephant said, you're right, I do need to change. And then the elephant looks in the mirror and the elephant says, I don't like the way my eyes look. I don't like my nose. Maybe I can get plastic surgery to change my eyes to look more like a giraffe. Maybe I can get skin cream to change the color of my skin so I can look more like a giraffe. Or get a nose that looks more like a giraffe. You can imagine what that would be like. You can imagine the elephant who was successfully navigating this giraffe space, this dominant space, to fit in, go along, get along, at the expense of all the elephant jokes, just so they can feel included. That elephant might tell other elephants, hey, you want to make it in this world? You got to become like a giraffe. You got to act like, talk like, think like a giraffe. Now, all that might be fine. Turns out more elephants start changing. They come into the communities. Uh, the, white, the, the, um, the giraffes start moving out. Sorry, the giraffes start moving out. They go to, uh, oh, I don't know. They, they don't like the neighborhood. It's not looking so safe anymore. Uh, they decide to move to Old Tapan, New Jersey, or whatever it is. Uh, but they're not going to stay where they are. Well, what happens is the group that was never really included in this group starts taking over the community. But what hasn't changed? The architecture hasn't changed, has it? You go to the schools, and the school's education is still giraffe history. Uh, you go to the church. The church is the style of music that giraffes like. <laughs> Elephants have long forgotten what it's like to be yourself. And I love that story because it applies in so many different ways. I can apply it to race here as well, right? This is a, an application for us as we think about the way we worship. I'd heard this, someone share this with me, um, African-American friend of mine, who loves the way his black church worships. And he says, it's hard to worship at a white church, but I love the way black church worships. And he asked me, Alex, you go to an Asian church. How do Asian people worship? Like, what's your style? And I said, um, I think we worship like white people. That's, you know, we pretty much well indoctrinated and we've embraced this approach. I don't know if there's an Asian approach to the way we worship. I know that... Um, Underwood and uh, Appenzeller and other missionaries who came to Korea uh, and evangelized did a very, very good job of evangelizing and sharing the gospel. But along the way, maybe inadvertently, also kind of took away a lot of the culture. And so it's hard to say exactly what uh, Korean-style worship might have been. Uh, we know what kind of prayer it is. I can talk about this. I can talk about normativity um, and what comes natural. I'll get to that in a minute. But okay, now I've been talking for a few minutes. You've seen me. You sized me up. It's always interesting with a similar crowd here, uh, mostly. But what's visible and what's invisible? 
This is true for me and, and true for you. What's visible and what's invisible? Obviously, what's visible is, wow, Alex is a good-looking guy. That's <laughs> impressive. Just kidding. A male, right? I'm Asian, right? There's several things that you can identify with me. But then what's invisible, right? I'm a Christian. I'm Presbyterian. Korean-American is my particular flavor, right? What is then invisible? These are explicit things that you can see. But what are implicit things that come along with things like being Asian and male? Well, you can imagine some of the popular assumptions that you'll make about Asians and other Asians, right? Uh, he's probably good at math. Uh, maybe he knows a martial art. Probably Taekwondo. Probably good with tech, right? I got a problem with my computer. Alex, can you help me with this? Um, you know, I'm horrible. I, maybe he plays a musical instrument. Right? Maybe piano or violin, I'd imagine. Yes. <laughs> it's fun to make these jokes. You know, you think about the implicit biases that sort of come along with explicit biases. And I can make jokes about it. Why insanity never made sense. I kept this for you because it's New York. Um, Asian Americans went crazy when we saw a guy like Jeremy Lin of now the Beijing Ducks uh, playing basketball because everybody longed to play basketball and wanted to be in a... Uh, in a, a sport where nobody looked like you. It was fascinating. Back in the day, uh, ESPN was trying to cover and talk about Jeremy Lin, and they were talking about his game and how he dribbles and how he shoots and all that. And it was interesting because they said, yeah, Jeremy Lin sort of plays like, he reminds me of, he, and they couldn't figure out. Why? Because they had no comparison. But I guarantee you the next Asian-American guard who comes into the NBA, they're like, he's got game like Jeremy Lin. I'm like, wow, that's a big surprise. So... That's fun. Here's uh, uh, presidential hopeful Yang. Very excited. Um, he got into a little hot water recently because he said, you know, Asians are good at math and um, he knows lots of doctors. And the Asian American community surprisingly revolted and they were very upset about this. And I share this because, listen, it's hard. It's hard to be an elephant. When am I supposed to act like an elephant with other elephants? When should I code shift, as sociologists like to say, and act more like the dominant group? There's no right answer, and there's no, there's no expectation, but here's the expectation from a white dominant group, maybe black and Latino, and certainly from Asian Americans. There's this expectation that Asians know all the answers for Asians, and that's just unfair for us. You become a representative of everything Asian, right? Especially if you're the only one in the room. You're naturally an expert. Everybody, Alex, why don't you tell us the Korean-American perspective on this? And I said, well, it's interesting you used to say that because I just finished the meeting with all the Korean-Americans. I was on subtle Asian traits, and they told me, this is what you need to know. And so I, I, you know, I did a whole rally, and I figured out what the numbers were. No, we don't do that. But the expectation is that you're supposed to know everything. Right? He's pretty good on universal uh, basic income. I like that. But he may not know everything on Asian Americans, even if he is himself an Asian American. So this is where it's interesting, and it's humorous at times, but implicit bias has a very deadly side to it. I have a friend who's a Los Angeles County sheriff. And apparently, to be a sheriff for the first two years, you're working in the prison system. Uh, this is a white... Christian, loves the Lord, and he wanted to serve, and this is why he's a sheriff. But he had confessed to me, he said, Alex, it's so hard because after two years in the prison system, and now I'm a sheriff, every person I pull over, I said, that guy looks just like a guy who's in prison for murder. 
And the other guy I pulled over looks just like him too. And the other, so it's this implicit bias that continues to get reinforced. And it's a problem in the United States um, with particularly black and brown people. I'm going to get to a little of this later, but what does it mean to have light-skinned privilege for Asian Americans? I got pulled over not too long ago getting ready to give a talk. Police pulled me over and I made sure that, you know, I... Um, straightened my tie and everything else and spoke perfect English just to make sure I already speak perfect English. Thank you very much. But just in case, you know, I wanted to be very articulate and make it clear that I wasn't a foreigner. And he asked me what I was doing here and all this stuff. And I got out of the ticket because I'm good with my words and I was, yes, sir. And oh, how are you, officer? I hope you have a safe day, all that kind of stuff. Never once did I think that I would get shot. Never once did I think that I wouldn't make it home to my family. And this is the lived reality for many black and brown men and women and boys across the United States. I share this with you, friends, because who is going to respond to the injustices that are happening in the world? The world might respond, but what is the role of the church? And what is the role of Christians? How white how might we, with love and gospel-centered, gospel-driven love and compassion for the world that we live in, also engage in some of this work? So this is not some lefty liberal issue that needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed in the world, and Christians, all Christians, ought to be engaged in it. It's what the Lord calls us to do. How much more so in the church that we should address these issues? So it's things that we ought to be thinking about. The problem, of course, with implicit bias, you know this expression, to a hammer, everything is a nail. It's very, very difficult to not think the way you are. You can take Alex out of Korea, but you can never take Korea out of Alex. So I love to say this. I can't help but think the way that I think. I can change it and talk about maleness as well. Right? And that's another issue. Maybe another talk for another day to talk about gender. But I have a lot of privilege as a male. There's a lot of privilege. The things I just don't think about as a guy. And no matter how much I try, it may be unintentional. To a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so this is a problem when you're in a dominant group, you don't think about others. It's just natural for us not to think about others. So when people say things like, I don't see color, I see you all the same, and my friends, my white friends always said this as a compliment to me, even in the church, they said, Alex, when I see you, I don't see an Asian. In a weird way, it was a compliment early on because I said, good, because I've been striving to look more like you. I wanted to look more uh, taller and blonder, and neither of those ever happened, by the way. Um, but this idea of colorblind theology, that we're all the same and I don't see color, is very problematic because God made us in multiple colors. Diversity is not something that man made. Diversity is something God made. When he made the birds the various forms in the sky and the fish of various uh, shapes and sizes in the sea, when he made man, when he made woman, when he made day, when he made night, even the creation order, you see that diversity was part of God's creation plan. So when you see the differences, it's absolutely God-ordained and God-blessed. So you can't say you don't see color. 
But what happens is when we say you don't see color, and I go to a Korean church primarily, and we have a Korean-speaking service and an English-speaking service, and people will say, Alex, I, I love that you go to a Korean church. And I heard how Koreans pray. Tong song kido, you pray like a waterfall. Everyone prays out loud. Uh, that's great. I think that's beautiful. And it was a compliment. I talked to some of my white friends, and I say, how do you pray? Where do you go to church? I go, oh, I go to a regular church. A regular church, which is just we pray normal. <laughs> It's fine. Who gets to own regular? Who gets to own normal? When did that become the standard tantamount to Christianity to say this is the way we're supposed to pray? Now I go back to my elephant and giraffe analogy. Some of us bought into that. And for years, here's another confession for Alex. I hated the way our church prayed. Right? It's, oh, this is not biblical. This is so wrong. Why do you do this? We should pray orderly. Like we should go individual popcorn prayer. Right? We should do popcorn <laughs> prayer. Uh, it, that's the right way to pray. It was the white way to pray, let's be honest. But uh, white way was the right way for me. And I hated all things Asian, all things Korean. Because I said, this isn't, this isn't the right way to do it. It wasn't orderly. Turns out... When you pray like that, when you pray all together, this is a new discovery for me, it may be more biblical. It may be more covenantal because it's God and his people. We're rooted, I said, Alex is out of Korea, but Korea is never out of Alex. We're collectivistic by nature. We're covenantal as God's people. So when people pray to God, they pray all together to God. Who needs to hear it? God needs to hear us. But it maybe it's rooted in some sort of individualism that's part of North America, that we all want to hear each other's prayers. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with either type of prayer. Um, except for, to be honest, popcorn prayer, I'm always confused because I was going to pray, but I'm Asian, so I don't pray first. I wait, you know, and then just as I'm about to pray, someone says, amen. And, you know, they hung up, and then so you, you can't pray, and then it's just, it just gets very awkward. Uh, for prayer, but I, I'm trying to learn. All of these different forms are fine, but this normative sense that there's a right way to do it is problematic, especially if that's not been your tradition. And so this is something that I share with you if you've struggled at all with anything that's quote-unquote ethnic to your Christianity, and you're feeling like you have to get rid of that ethnic part so that you can become more normalized. And I want to free us and free myself as I'm talking from that kind of normativity. It's a misunderstanding, as I said, of covenant theology. We're so much more, I get, we get why Jeremy Lin, why we celebrate him. We also understand, for most Asian Americans, we'll understand when Asians behave badly. When they do something wrong, I feel shame and guilt. Why? Because that guy looks like me. Or when someone does something, I go, oh, that, that looks like my uncle. That's something my uncle would do and say. And I'm just full of shame. But in a funny way, I think we understand that um, naturally. And I share this with folks in the dominant group who are not Asian or, or, or um, not, not people of color. And I say, it's funny because you say, oh, are we going to win it all this year? We are going to win. They're talking about the Yankees, right? Are we going to win it? And I'm like, I'm sorry. Are you part of the Yankee organization in some way, shape, or form? Right, were you a former player or manager? Are you like, how are you affiliated? Where do you get we? Where do you get we? You're not part of the organization, and yet you say that we're going to win this whole thing, right? And we won X number of championships and all that. I'm in L.A., so we don't say that a lot because uh, we don't win anything. Um, but if you think about that whole idea of individual versus collective, we understand why the church together can repent of racism and our racist past. 
we get covenantally what that means, but all of a sudden when we start talking about race and racism, we're like, well, I didn't own slaves, so uh, it wasn't me. It wasn't my issue, right? That's not how we read scripture. It's covenantal. It's generational. It's connected. That's why an Asian American like myself can also repent of past sins of racism, and we're connected. And then I have to seek my heart to say, where have I been preferential and not loving and anti-black and, and full of colorism in my own community, Asian American community? Friends, we're going to talk about that too. Not today, but maybe you won't come back. Okay. Misunderstanding grace and merit. I'll talk more about that again tomorrow. The idea that uh, you've earned it somehow. If you went to a good school, good university, got a good job, somehow we think we've earned this and we don't understand what it means to have grace. Um, I was giving baseball analogies earlier, so I'll do another one. You go through your whole life thinking that you hit a triple when in reality you were born on third base. You had no choice in how you ended up where you are. You, maybe you're part of generational wealth, right? You worked hard, so did the person next to you. The difference is... Your grandfather owned land that he passed down to his father, that he passed down to you, right? So how hard do you really need to work to have land acquired in your name when you were born? Right? Different examples I could give about merit and grace. We understand that. We were all born here in the 21st century. Many of us in the United States, in North America. Did we have a choice in that? No, we could have been born in a third century Bedouin society, right? Uh, we had no choice in how we ended up here. How hard did we really have to work to get what we want here in North America with the schooling and everything else? So there's many forms of privilege that I think we can address. It's, it's grace, and it's grace over merit. It's true for our salvation, and it's mostly true for the way we live our lives every day. This idea, especially when we talk about why a predominantly Asian, Asian-American group would talk about these things in the church when it sounds like it's a black-white issue. It's not. It's an everybody issue. Um, what is our role? We are complicit in many ways because we're silent on it because it doesn't affect us. Dare I say, and I'll speak for myself as an Asian American, I am at once a perpetuator of racism toward other people while also being a victim. I perpetuate racism through my anti-blackness, through my colorism, and I also am a victim. Can you be both? Can you hold on to multiple realities? Yes. Is this only for the dominant white group in the church? No. We have a role too. We have uh, a role to play in this, and we have some complicity in this silence. When you think about hermeneutics and we think about North America, the, the entire church, not just um, uh, a white church, but this idea of a hermeneutic, a proper interpretation and understanding of Scripture. Um, we think that Christianity in North America is this victorious, triumphal approach to living lives. I look at my parents and most of my family who immigrated to the United States. They have a deeper understanding of what it means to not belong. They know what it's like to be a foreigner in a land. That's not their home. And I heard my father and my mother crying for many, uh, when, when I was younger, I heard them when they had a particularly bad day at work. And they say, we want to go home. We want to go home. We want to go back home. And they, I think immigrants have a better biblical hermeneutic of what it means 
this eschatological reality of going home. There's something that Asian Americans and immigrant families can teach the rest of the church on what it means to have that kind of biblical hermeneutic, that kind of understanding. If the church is suffering today because of all these tax laws and all these things people are saying, oh, we want uh, Christian colleges and maybe eventually pastors to not have taxes net status. We don't want government funding to go to churches. And everybody's all nervous about this. And they're saying, we can't suffer, we can't suffer. And where are we going to learn how to survive? What group of Christians can we turn to to learn about suffering? You know who we can turn to? We can turn to the black church. The black church knows a thing or two about suffering. They suffered at the hands of the white church. Imagine slave drivers and slave ship captains and owners. People would rape and, and steal your children and your wives. And then they shared the gospel with you. And somehow... Africans coming and enslaved in the United States heard the gospel, a fractured, truncated gospel preached to them by white slave owners interested more in, in capital gain than they were in sharing the gospel. They shared a truncated gospel, and black slaves heard the true gospel, and they understood what it means to suffer. They understand now still what it means to suffer. All of us should be able to turn to the black Christians and the black church to learn a thing or two about what it means to interpret suffering and still survive. But we don't frame it that way, do we? We always see of a minority group, and it's just nice to invite them in. We feel good about that. Uh, this is part of the problem. And we, I'm, what I ultimately want to do, I can't possibly do it in 24 hours, but it's consciousness raising. Friends, I want you to be critically conscious and then as you're reading scripture, your eyes will open and you'll see it a different way. And I'll pray for you that you'll see things differently. That's going to be a very important piece. We fail to see that the United States and the church was built on capitalism, how you can get more cotton for free off the backs of... Now, you know that they didn't bring slaves to the United States from Africa. They didn't bring slaves. They brought doctors and... Um, uh, community members and fathers, they weren't slaves. They came to the United States and became slaves, failing to see. And how do you show love and compassion and forgiveness? It is amazing, isn't it? The capacity to forgive. That's something we can learn from a certain community. If this is hard to relate because it's a black, white, binary, this is always good for especially Koreans. I still have family members who refuse to buy any Japanese products. I said, I bought a car. They said, did you buy a Hyundai? <laughs> you didn't buy Toyota, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, I bought a Hyundai. <laughs> um, if you think about um, the atrocities of one group to another, what the Japanese did, this is a picture of comfort women, one of the few photos that exist uh, of what happened to Korean. These are my halmonis. These are my grandmothers, our grandmothers and aunts. Uh, for those of you who are from Korea, very painful reminders. How do you forgive? If you get a chance, listen to Michael O. Oh, he's the president of Lausanne. Gives a great talk as he became a missionary to Japan. Korean-American uh, missionary to Japan to share the gospel with what was essentially his enemies. And his parents said, I can't believe you're going to Japan to share the gospel. The power of the gospel to forgive and have reconciliation. Well, it's important, I think, as I wrap up, 
the great theologian and social commentary of um, uh, Ali Wong. And I will confess, yes, I've watched her Netflix series uh, with great, well, anyway, anyway, don't, I'm not recommending. There's this one part that I really liked where she said, you know, it's nice to marry another Asian because then we can be racist all day long at home. It was really funny because she said she's like Vietnamese Chinese. Her husband is well, Chinese and Filipino. And all day long, we bag on Koreans. Oh, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, I share this because obviously being Asian American, it's not monolithic. We think about different pockets of dominance and non-dominance. And as a Korean American in the Presbyterian Church in, American, in America, we are the dominant group for Asians. When they say, oh, we have a lot of Asians, about 12% of our denomination are Asian. Well, 12% are Korean, but we have very few Chinese, Japanese, uh, Southeast Asians. So within our communities, especially with my Asian American friends who are non-Korean, they say, Alex, you know, we always rag on Koreans, right? You know that. You guys are like the white people of Asia. You're like, every, everything you do, so you're always in control. And I say, yeah, I know. We're going to work on that. So intra-Asian groups, intra-Asian groups have a lot to talk about as well. So it's not just one group. So um, I'm sure that's something that you all can discuss amongst yourself in this group. I have questions prepared for you uh, to think about. But I'm going to wrap up with this. I hope you all like to read. Um, I won't make assumptions about studying hard. So anyway, read, please. Good books for you to read. Um, Sean Michael Lucas, a friend of mine who's a, in our denomination, uh, wrote a great book on the Presbyterian Church and the history of all the issues that sort of emerged as a white Southern Presbyterian denomination. Really, really good book. He's a historian and a pastor. Um, I wouldn't it wouldn't be right if I didn't include a Korean brother. So Sung Chan Ra wrote a great book, uh, The Next Evangelicalism. Some really, really powerful chapters in there. Sung Chan Ra, um, Korean-American, academic, uh, and author. By that definition, I should hate him. I should be filled with, like, competition. I love him. He's a, he's a good man. Um, Disunity in Christ is a really good book. Christina Cleveland wrote this many, many years ago, and it's a, a good introduction to some of the issues, right Christian, wrong Christian, things that I talked about. I think she has a really good book, uh, mostly on a binary, sort of white-black, because she's African-American uh, theologian. And the final one is another one in my denomination, our denomination, Helas Emanuel. And uh, what's neat about this book is um, it's a compilation of probably 30 different leaders, 30 different leaders in our denomination, pastors, academics like myself, but there's a good section in there. I think it's a really good section on white pastors, uh, white Presbyterian pastors who grew up in the South and other places who heard these stories, maybe told funny jokes at one time, and they've come to this realization of why race and racism is a problem in the church and how they're going to address it. And I think that's an important piece that it's not just talking about race and racism isn't something limited to just people of color. Everybody needs to be doing it in the church. We all need to work together to reconcile this. I gave you an example earlier about men and women. And for the longest time, when we talked about gender equity, I always assumed gender equity and gender equality was a woman's issue. And I thought I was a woke man by always being supportive of my sisters in the work that they do. Turns out gender is both male and female. 
It's cisgender and transgender as well, but we'll talk about that another time. Um, it's male and female. So for me to cheer on the women to say, I hope it goes well, I'm going to encourage you without realizing that my complicity is I need to be talking to other dudes. When women aren't in the room, I need to be addressing these issues, right? That's when I became the giraffe and not the elephant. I became the dominant group. And I would imagine there are different pockets here where you are the dominant group. So you need to talk with each other to say, what can we do? And then don't exclude people in the dominant white community who really do want to learn and want to benefit from this uh, conversations and help. You can't simply say, oh, but you're white, so you're not part of this discussion. We're going to come up with a list of how we need to fix you. That's not going to work. It's not very winsome, and it's incredibly arrogant on our part as Christians. We need to work together for a watching world to see how Christians will address the issue of race and be reconciled to the glory of God. Thank you very much.